This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In with Chris Hayes, The Rachel Maddow Show, Counterspin, The Young Turks, Melissa Harris-Perry, Making Contact, and Activism from NARAL. one of the few hospitals in the United States in 1970 that was doing abortions. And I did my first abortion before Roe v. Wade. That's where we took care of so many of the patients that had problems with their either self-attempted or back-alley abortions. And that converted you in some way? It didn't convert me. I think it really just awakened me that this was just, you know, somebody had to do it. And there was a, an innate wrong. It just it was wrong not to do it. Before 1973, abortion was illegal across much of the country. To receive proper medical care, a woman not only had to have enough money, but she had to live in or near just a handful of states. And if she didn't, she had little choice but to terminate a pregnancy on her own. She had opened out a hairpin, placed it within the cervix. It was a public health crisis. It would have a permanent effect on me psychologically because I'm not capable of being a mother at this time. But that all changed when a challenge to the status quo found its way to the Supreme Court. We are not here to advocate abortion. We are here to advocate that the decision as to whether or not a particular woman will continue to carry or will terminate a pregnancy is a decision that should be made by that individual. The landmark ruling in Roe versus Wade transformed women's health care as we know it. January 22nd, 1973 will stand out as one of the great days for freedom and free choice. It also gave rise to a permanent cultural and political backlash. Whatever their legal rationale, seven men have made a tragic utilitarian judgment regarding who shall live and who shall die. By the 1990s, the abortion wars took to the streets, and a new legal challenge made its way to the Supreme Court, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. We are receiving word of an important decision from the U.S. Supreme Court involving abortion. At issue were provisions in a Pennsylvania law that restricted a woman's access to abortion. The court handed down a divided decision. Abortion remained a constitutional right for women across the country, but it was a right that could be restricted by individual states. The court upheld provisions of the law requiring abortion counseling, a 24-hour waiting period, and parental consent for minors. What the court did today is devastating for women. In the decades since, the court has affirmed and sometimes expanded the ways in which states can restrict access to abortion. And it is under that legal framework that many states today are targeting abortion services. Missouri will now have one of the toughest abortion laws in the nation. from Texas, where the Senate has approved one of the most restrictive abortion bills in the country. quietly signed one of the nation's strictest anti-abortion bills into law. North Dakota enacting one of the nation's toughest anti-abortion laws. Virginia is set to enact one of the toughest anti-abortion laws in the country. The rise of Republican-controlled state houses has paved the way for an onslaught of anti-choice legislation. They want to ban abortion. They can't ban abortion by overturning Roe. They found out that that doesn't work. So what do they do? They pull it apart piece by piece. They add in waiting periods. 
They prohibit your health plan from covering abortion. They limit how medication abortion can be provided. They ban certain methods of abortion. It makes it incredibly difficult for providers to do their job and for women to access services. In just the last four years, states have enacted over 230 abortion restrictions. Much of it designed to make it more difficult for women to get access to care, or in some cases, close clinics altogether. And now some state houses are targeting abortion by closing the window within the pregnancy in which a woman can have one. In 2010, Nebraska did just that. The governor signed an unprecedented law banning abortions after the 20th week or 5th month of pregnancy. The law took aim at the practice of Dr. Leroy Carhart. Dr. Carhart performs abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy, when many birth defects and health complications are discovered. I didn't find this bill. It found Nebraska in that we have a provider in this state that wants to perform late-term abortions. With the signing of that bill, Carhart began traveling to Maryland to perform abortions after 20 weeks and was greeted by protests. We will not be complacent while women are being brutalized and viable children are dying. What Dr. Carhart experienced in Nebraska has now expanded to nearly a dozen states where similar or in some cases stricter measures are in effect. They're adopting laws. The laws are going into effect and women are falling by the wayside because they can't access services when they need them. It's fueled a climate of intimidation and harassment, leaving the few people left trying to provide those services to live under constant threat. Over the years, Dr. Carhart has received multiple threats of violence, both at his clinic and his home. After the family barn burned down, killing horses and pets, Carhart got a letter saying it was in retaliation for the work he did. In 2009, his friend and colleague, Dr. George Tiller, was assassinated while at church. Do you worry about your security? The only thing we can do is try to protect ourselves the best we can, but there's no way that it's going to get between me and the mission that I've chosen. The anti-abortion movement in this country may not have succeeded in getting Roe overturned, but they are on track to achieving the same goal. It's even deeper than eliminating all abortions. I think the agenda is still to take away the right of a woman to control her fertility. That's what I really think the basic issue is. 45 years ago, a woman could get an abortion in America if she lived in the right place and had the means to do so. What Roe did was guaranteed that right to every woman in every state. But the future we are now entering looks a whole lot like the past. November 1994, a doctor named Garson Romales uh, was at home eating breakfast in his kitchen 
His wife and his daughter were at home with him as well. Uh, his breakfast table was apparently next to a sliding glass door inside his home in this nice neighborhood where he lived on the west side of the city of Vancouver. Uh, and as Dr. Romulus was sitting there eating his breakfast at his breakfast table, somebody fired two bullets from a high-powered rifle through that sliding glass door into his home. One of those bullets hit him in the thigh. It actually got him in the femoral artery. He very easily could have died once that artery was hit. He reportedly saved his own life by making a tourniquet out of the belt on his bathrobe and cinching that tourniquet around the wound in his thigh. And Dr. Romales survived that assassination attempt. Dr. Romales was a gynecologist who sometimes provided abortions. And anti-abortion protesters had previously picketed at his house in Vancouver. But that attempted murder in Vancouver, November 1994, that was the first time anybody had tried to assassinate an abortion doctor in Canada. The next one was a year later. Same M.O. Dr. Hugh Short was a gynecologist in Ontario, right near Niagara Falls, right near the American border. He was sitting inside his house in November 1995. He was watching TV. And this time, the high-powered rifle round came through a window of his home. It got him in the elbow. Uh, and he, too, survived that assassination attempt. Then the next one was two years later. It was November 1997. Dr. Jack Feynman was at home in Winnipeg. He was watching TV at home. His wife was also at home with him, but she was in another room. And a high-powered rifle round was shot through the window and very nearly killed him. That bullet hit the doctor in his right shoulder. At that time, Dr. Jack Feynman was the head of obstetrics and gynecology at a major hospital in Winnipeg, but that rifle round shattered his shoulder. And, and, and after that injury, he never worked as a doctor again. And for all three of those shootings, it was the same MO. Bullets from a high-powered rifle fired through the window or through another glass entryway into the home, 1994, 1995, 1997. In all of those cases, those doctors who did abortions, they were injured by that gunfire but not killed. And in each of those instances, the shooter got away. And then there was a fourth one. It had been 94, 95, 97. The fourth one was 1998. And this one was not far from his second attack. This one was just south of the Niagara Falls area on the American side of the border this time. This was a sniper attack, 1998. It was another doctor who did abortions who was targeted just on the U.S. side of the border near Niagara Falls in a town called Amherst, New York. It's quite near Buffalo, New York. Dr. Barnett Slepian was home with his family. He was standing in the kitchen of his home along with his other family members. He and his family had just returned from his father's funeral service. And again, high-powered rifle rounds came in through the window. And in this case, the doctor was killed. Initially, the sniper got away again. He ended up leading police on an international manhunt that lasted for years. He was known to have dozens of aliases and multiple passports, and apparently people helping him out at multiple steps along the way. He is known to have spent time in Mexico and in Ireland and in France. And it was ultimately not until early 2001 that he was finally captured in France and extradited to the United States. He was a named suspect in the three attempted assassinations of those three Canadian doctors in 1994, 1995, 1997. He was a named suspect in all three of those attempted murders. But when he was tried and convicted of Dr. Slepian's murder, 
He ended up with a life sentence in this country, and so the Canadians decided to drop proceedings against him in the shootings of those three preceding doctors. Those, those, those legal proceedings against him were dropped. But the odyssey of just that one killer, from the first shots that he fired at that first doctor to face an assassination attempt in Canada in Vancouver in 1994, from that start until this guy was finally locked up for life in 2003, that nearly decade-long odyssey spanned at least five countries involved a law enforcement effort literally the world over. But when they did finally get that guy, turns out he was not a unique case. You could just slot him right into a long line of people who have shot at and attempted to kill and killed not just doctors who provide abortions, but also people who work at abortion clinics, people who have found themselves at abortion clinics when anti-abortion extremists decide to carry out their attacks. Ultimately, people have given up their lives trying to protect clinics and abortion providers from the repeated and determined campaign of assassination and terrorism that has targeted these kinds of facilities and these kinds of health workers for so many years now. In March 1993, it was Dr. David Gunn in Pensacola. He was shot three times in the back when he arrived at the clinic where he worked uh, during an anti-abortion protest. In J July 1994, it was Dr. John Britton who was shot and killed, along with a retired Air Force officer who was acting basically as a security guard for that doctor at that clinic. His name was James Barrett. His wife, June Barrett, was also shot and wounded in that same attack. In December 1994, it was two different clinics that did abortions in Brookline, Massachusetts. The same gunman attacked both facilities, killed a receptionist who worked at each of those clinics. Shannon Lowney was killed at the first clinic. Leanne Nichols was killed at the second clinic. The previous year in 1993, it was an attempted murder. It was an anti-abortion activist named Shelley Shannon who had shot a doctor who did abortions in Kansas, a doctor named George Tiller. She shot him through the arms in the parking lot of his clinic. Dr. George Tiller survived that attack. He went back to work the very next day. Ultimately, it wasn't until 2009 when they finally got him. A different anti-abortion extremist who had apparently been inspired by the earlier attack and by the string of attacks like them in this country, he went back at Dr. Tiller in Kansas again, shot and killed him in 2009 as Dr. Tiller was serving as an usher at his local church. We remember the 1996 Atlanta Olympics bombing for a number of bizarre circumstances around that bombing, right? Remember the, the wrong man, a security guard who had tried to help in the response to the bombing, was initially blamed for having committed it. Uh, we also remember the real perpetrator of the attack, a guy named Eric Rudolph, getting away and evading capture for years and becoming kind of an anti-abortion folk hero as he lived as a thief and a pseudo-survivalist and evaded capture for so long. What is less well-remembered about the Atlanta Olympics bombing, which did kill one person, is that Eric Rudolph said he bombed the Atlantic, uh, Atlanta Olympics specifically to punish America for the sin of abortion. And what is even more frequently forgotten about Eric Rudolph is that while he was on the lam, while he was on the run after the Atlanta Olympics bombing, he also committed another fatal bombing at an abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama. He set off a nail bomb, set it off by remote control. It killed an off-duty police officer who was working security for the clinic. That officer's name was Robert Sanderson. That same nail bomb also badly injured a nurse who worked at that clinic. Her name is Emily Lyons. And now we have new names to add to that almost unbelievably long list. At the Planned Parenthood clinic that was attacked by what appears to be a lone gunman 
on Friday in Colorado Springs. There are nine people who were injured in that attack, most of whom are still hospitalized tonight. But we also now have the names of the three people who were shot and killed in that attack. The first one to be identified was police officer Garrett Swayze. Police have also now identified the other two people who were killed in the attack. One was an Army veteran who had served in the Iraq War. His name was Kiari Stewart. He was 29 years old. The other person who was killed was Jennifer Markovsky. She was a 35-year-old mother of two who had moved to Colorado when her husband uh, was stationed in Colorado because of his service in the military. And so Officer Garrett Swayze and Kiari Stewart and Jennifer Markovsky, they joined this long list of people who have been killed at the site of U.S. clinics that provide abortions. And this happens at a time when abortion providers have been expressing alarm and have basically been asking for help in defending themselves against a recent uptick in attacks, physical attacks on clinics. Just this month, before the Colorado Springs attack on Friday, NARAL had started circulating a letter asking the Department of Justice to please investigate the surge in recent attacks on abortion clinics as acts of domestic terrorism. They cited the videos released this summer by anti-abortion activists that targeted Planned Parenthood as a sort of catalyst for this uptick in attacks. Nate Rowell says in their letter to Attorney General Loretta Lynch, quote, beginning in July, when the video was first released and continuing in recent weeks, there have been multiple arson attacks and an outrageous number of threats to U.S. abortion providers. Since the first anti-Planned Parenthood video was released, there have been four arson attacks at Planned Parenthood clinics across the country, in New Orleans, in Pullman, Washington, in Thousand Oaks, California, and in Aurora, Illinois. Just last month, a clinic in Claremont, New Hampshire was attacked. Somebody broke in and used a hatchet to destroy equipment and exam rooms and break water and sewer lines, flooding the entire clinic. In addition, independent providers alongside with Planned Parenthood clinics have reported an increase in violent threats to clinics and clinic staff. We call on the Department of Justice to investigate these attacks as examples of domestic terrorism. Again, that letter was circulated by NARAL as basically a petition to be sent to Attorney General Loretta Lynch. That was circulated this month before the attacks in Colorado Springs. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. It's a crime story, a culture war story. 
a debate about what gets called terrorism and about presidential candidates' ability to rise or sink to an occasion. But for all the worthy stories being aired, the killing of three people at a Colorado Springs Planned Parenthood clinic by a man angry about baby parts hasn't quite become a story about women and our right to decide whether to have a child. With Colorado only the latest in a long, long history of attacks, how do we move the conversation off the dime of whether reproductive justice advocates have a right to be upset toward what must be done to secure an atmosphere in which women can actually exercise their full human and legal rights? Jody Jacobson is editor-in-chief at RH Reality Check. She joins us now by phone from Maryland. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jody Jacobson. Thank you for having me. Well, of criteria by which journalism can be judged, I think anyone would say providing adequate context for events would be preeminent. So it would seem odd not to locate the November 27th murders by Robert Louis Deere within a context of months of serious contentions from serious people like Carly Fiorina, like Ted Cruz, that Planned Parenthood barters and sells the body parts of unborn children, as Cruz has said, or that is, as Mike Huckabee said, it's a kill-for-hire organization. I mean, it says something about media's approach to abortion that we have to argue that that's an appropriate context within which to understand these murders. Absolutely. Look, we're in a period right now where we're sort of in what I call a battle of fundamentalism. Yesterday we saw many people killed and wounded by a couple of people who we don't know their motivation or really where they were coming from or what they were doing, but we do know that they took violence into their own hands for what may well end up being a personal issue. This is San Bernardino. In San Bernardino. And last week we saw a man go and attack a Planned Parenthood clinic, again, out of what he thought was his personal responsibility to attack health care providers. Where is all of this coming from? The Christian right in this country sees itself as preeminent and sees itself as creating the Christian law that it wants us all to abide by, which includes a very strict and regulated role for women, which absolutely does not include access to contraception, birth control, reproductive health care, or control over our own bodies, including abortion care. So you've got this atmosphere in which people like a deluded and violently aggressive person, as his past indicates, like Robert Deere, decides it's okay for him to take matters into his own hands. So I think there's a connection here. Whatever we're labeling these different things, There's a connection here between ideologies that are being spread and giving permission to people to take action based on their own grievances or perceptions and take matters into their own hands. And I'm very concerned about that because in the aftermath of the Planned Parenthood attacks last week, not only did the Christian right not take any responsibility, we saw several of the people in that community actually egg on perpetrators of violence, like Eric Erickson, who's the editor of Red State and is a Fox News contributor, literally said that he's surprised there aren't more people doing it. 
So I think we're in a really scary time because we're a country that is loaded for bear with guns and all sorts of other ammunition and firearms, and we are encouraging people to take matters into their own hands. Well, there's a short-term and a longer-term historical context here, I mean, just in terms of sequence of events. In the short term, this clearly has some connection to the video by the so-called Center for Medical Progress that was released in July. There was actually a traceable effect, wasn't there, of the release of that video and threats to abortion providers. Absolutely. For months on end, we've seen, again, members of the Christian right and the anti-choice community, which is increasingly one, using videos that were purposefully created for the purpose of defaming Planned Parenthood. These are heavily edited, deceptive videos that purport to show Planned Parenthood breaking the law when it comes to the donation of fetal tissue. Now, there has been really bad reporting on this because you've got this false equivalency reporting which says the videos came out and they, they blame Planned Parenthood for this. Planned Parenthood says it's not true. Well, let's be real here. There's been congressional committees and there's been at least eight, if not ten, state investigations, all of which have found absolutely no wrongdoing because there's no wrongdoing to be found. In fact, governors in several states undertook to take taxpayer money to, quote-unquote, investigate Planned Parenthood fetal tissue research in their state in states where Planned Parenthood doesn't do fetal tissue research donations. So, I mean, talk about the absurdity of using this as a political tool against a women's health care provider. It's just one in a long series of attacks on Planned Parenthood. And what's happened with these videos, they were purposefully both created and then edited to make it look like there was wrongdoing. But then they were purposefully leaked out over a period of time as a method of trying to create a longer arc for this story, generate disgust and hatred against Planned Parenthood, and also leading up to votes in the Senate and the House to defund Planned Parenthood. So you've got a real strategy here. We already know that at least two, if not more, of the folks on one of the House committees that oversees these things saw these videos well before they were released and didn't look into whether they were true or not. So they knew what was coming. We have FOIA requests for communications around this to find out who knew what when because it says something that these Congress people were shown these videos. We don't know if they saw the unedited versions or the edited versions. We don't know what was behind it. But, you know, here we have collision between a group that has no credibility to begin with, likely obtained these videos in an illegal manner in the state of California, used false IDs, and then infiltrated clinics and meetings and secretly taped people and then heavily edited the videos to make it look like something was going wrong. Well, you point to a real media phenomenon there, even outlets that themselves debunked the CMD video that stated flat out that it doesn't show what it purports to show, that people are actively disinforming. Even those outlets will now report matter-of-factly on mischaracterizations of the video, you know, because that's a thing that happened, someone said that, without acknowledging that doing so lends it some 
legitimacy, you know, by tacitly allowing something that is untrue to be presented as debatable. Exactly. Reporters are lending it a, an inappropriate legitimacy that's volatile that you might even say is is weaponized, you know, they make themselves I think part of the part of the problem here. Exactly, because what it does is it suggests there's an open question where no open question exists. You're not only suggesting there's an open question, you're taking the word of a heretofore unbeknownst organization on the board of which is a known uh, right-wing abortion terror encourager. <laughs> that would be Troy Newman, who's the head of Operation Rescue, and who has said that, you know, he's just A-OK with the execution, in his words, of abortion providers. And you are making them a credible voice on an issue that they have just demonstrated absolutely no credibility. So it's, it, to me, it's the height of irresponsible journalism wrapped up in some sort of journalistic integrity flag, and it's not. It's not, there's no integrity in it. I was going to ask you about Troy Newman. He's the board member of this Center for Medical Progress and president, as you note, of Operation Rescue. That ties this latest video, in a way, to the longer history that we know of, of clinic attacks. And we're not talking about, you know, I've seen some a brief look back items in papers, but we're not talking about a couple dozen incidents over the years. We are talking about, in terms of the violence that's been perpetrated against providers, we are talking about not only a history of violence, but also what the FBI itself has noted is an increasing threat of violence and an increasing trend of violence, meaning that we're actually seeing increased violence aimed at providers. So you've got arsons, you've got shootings, you've got the Antax letters being sent, you've got intimidation and harassment, docking of providers has risen, you've got these flyers that are made up to look like wanted posters that give the private information of providers and clinic workers. You've got all of these kinds of practices of outright intimidation that, while of course they are in some ways protected by the First Amendment, because they are inciting violence, now we know clearly they're inciting violence, I think have to be looked at from the point of view of what the real intention here is. In California, for example, there's a law that enables providers of abortion services and reproductive health care to keep completely private all of their personal and other information, and it, it, it adds a measure, it's not a certainty of anything, but it adds a measure of safety for those folks, whereas in other states that not only does not exist, but in some states they've tried to actually make the personal information of providers and clinic workers more available to those who would do them harm, which, again, I feel like is incitement to violence and intimidation. So I find it really troublesome that this is not a fringe group exercise. This is a collision with legislatives and other folks who are in power, who are policymakers, lawmakers, attorneys general, who have it out for reproductive health providers and have done their best to lay the groundwork for anti-choice terrorism and anti-choice intimidation.
Fox House apparently got the memo that the right was going into full-on defense mode over their tacit support and encouragement for anti-abortion extremism. And I know that because on Fox News last night, all of the major hosts, all of the major shows were incredibly defensive about their rhetoric, the left's attacks on their rhetoric. And they tried to do a bit of jujitsu and turn it back around onto the left, saying that perhaps they're the ones encouraging uh, both violence and discrimination against Christians. So we've got a bunch here, so buckle up. The first one is going to be uh, Megyn Kelly. She is incredibly defensive. Carly Fiorina, who said falsely that Planned Parenthood was guilty of harvesting a live baby's organs. Um, so is it this kind of rhetoric that's fueling these mentally unbalanced people to act? It, it was the rhetoric. It ha Chris, it has to be the rhetoric that drove the guy who was engaging in animal torture to commit this act. But is this not an e a evidence? of the bias in some of these reporters who see who are on the pro-choice side and think any expression of the anti-abortion the pro-life stance is angry rhetoric if you use the term baby killers which the pro-life people believe abortion is that's the hateful rhetoric they want to shut down that's the hateful rhetoric they want to pin this crime on I, I love that so any expression is hateful. You know, any expression, like they're killing millions of babies and you should stop them. What, there's something wrong with that? There's something wrong. No, here, here's, here's the rhetoric. I personally don't like abortion. You can say that. Yes. You're allowed to say that. If Megyn Kelly said that at the beginning of every show, I would think that was totally reasonable. But when you go on every show, night after night, they are baby killers. They are chopping up babies. They're selling babies. And Carla Fiorina, by the way, for some reason Megyn Kelly didn't feel the need to say this, was actually lying. That was a miscarriage baby that was in those right. high, heavily edited tapes. When you say those sorts of things, when you say that they are murdering millions of babies... That's the sort of rhetoric that is hateful that we have a problem with. So I don't think that Fox News or any right-wing pundit has the intention to incite violence, to rile people up to the point where they actually, you know, carry out violent acts like what this guy did. Mm -hmm. um, however, what the media does, and I'm, this is generally speaking, it's not just Fox, it's a lot of different media outlets. Fear sells, right? Mm -hmm. Fear mongering works really well. And when you use certain language and you use fear tactics and you do rile people up, your ratings go up, people pay closer attention. Yeah. You know, not doing sensationalistic news is the ethical, correct thing to do. However, sensationalist news is what gets the eyeballs. That's what people like to look at. Yeah. And so when Fox News uses the kind of rhetoric that they do, maybe they don't intend on inciting violence, but it does lead to some people who are unhinged yeah. to hear the words baby killer over and over again and then feel the need to engage in vigilante justice. Yeah. And that's what's happening right now. Now, am I going to pinpoint you know, Bill O'Reilly or Megyn Kelly and say, you know what, they should be prosecuted because they're inciting violence and th this is a real problem that we need to deal with? No. Yeah. But I do think that this is a great time to kind of step back, look at our rhetoric, and see what kind of impact it has on society. Yeah. If they're not allowed, or if we're not allowed to have an open dialogue about what the reality is, it shows you how close-minded they are. First of all, Planned Parenthood is not an organization that kills babies. Planned Parenthood is an organization that provides many health services to women, and abortion is 3% of what they do. Okay, mm -hmm. 
and they're not killing babies. You might think it's life at the moment of conception. I disagree. I don't think it's life at the moment of conception. Yeah. That's a huge disagreement in the country. Regardless of whether or not we disagree, at this point, the Supreme Court has ruled that abortion is legal. Women have the right to practice their reproductive rights. If you don't like it, then don't practice abortion. Don't do abortion. Yeah. Don't have contraceptives. Don't do what you don't like based on your religion. But that doesn't mean that you get to go on national television and start accusing an organization of killing babies to the point where unhinged individuals like Mr. Deer go out yeah. and, and kill innocent people. Yeah. Look, this is not this is not a rarity. This is not an isolated incident. It's not like this happened once and liberals are like, oh my God, look at Fox News, we got to target them. Yeah. This happens over and over and over yeah, again. Yeah, multiple attacks, yeah. Since the Center for Medical Progress released their so-called sting videos, which were edited and defamatory, Four other Planned Parenthoods have been targeted, yeah. okay, in, in vandaliz vandalism and things like that. So there's obviously an issue here, and we need to have a discussion yeah. about it. Yeah, they're not responsible for their being crazy people, but if there are crazy mountain men Christians who are get ready to get riled up about abortion, and then you go out there every day and you say baby parts and baby killers and baby parts and baby killers, when they commit the act and then they're rambling about baby parts, Maybe feel a little bit of remorse. Maybe go 24 hours, 48 hours before you go back to attacking uh, that organization. Uh, but no, they're, they're not going to. They're not going to do that. Uh, now she was talking there about uh, the hateful rhetoric that the left is always attacking, implying that it is rare, that it's not particularly hateful, perhaps. Now Jarris put together a montage here of what some of that actually looks like. You know how to stop abortion? Require that each one occur with a gun. Not once did anybody in the elite media ask why Barack Obama voted in favor of legalizing infanticide. And if people can uh, come up with a reasonable uh, explanation of why they would like to kill a baby. You'll have to ask God why he didn't kill him. I, 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 I'm not in charge of, of, of the death or life of the Supreme Court judges. <laughs> so it's in God's hands that whether they live a long life. But that thing was called Blackman's abortion. It is President Obama who as a state senator voted to protect doctors who killed babies who survived the abortion. Rape and incest. Uh, rape and incest, I would not be in favor of killing a baby. An abortion doesn't unrape a woman. An abortion just adds more violence on top of that that first violence that she endured. On the rape thing, it's like, how does how does putting more violence onto a woman's body and, and taking the life of an innocent child that's not that's a consequence of this crime? How does that make it better? In the last case scenario, you would use deadly force to stop if, the force. If that is the, um, again, uh, if there's no other choice, that's, that's what's needed to protect the citizen. Some of those videos I had forgotten about or never saw. Like, the, the way to stop abortion is to make sure that everyone's done with a gun. He's saying that you should literally shoot women in the stomach to perform abortions. That's not violent rhetoric at all. No, not right? at all. Or, or, or uh, Robertson there saying, well, you know, maybe the Supreme Court justices get assassinated. Maybe they don't. It's in God, God's hands. Wink. That's insanity. I don't understand. That, that specifically there, he probably should have been investigated based on. That you can't advocate for the assassination of Supreme Court justices or say, well, you know, maybe it happens. I've got thousands of people watching me right now. Maybe. That video montage stirred up so much anger within me. I, I'm going to try to calmly explain uh, my viewpoints on this, okay? Um, those statements came from the same individuals who are against providing health care to Americans. It came from the same individuals who are against food stamps and 
governmental programs that help the poor to ensure that they stay alive, that they stay healthy. Those same statements came from people who deny our veterans, the same troops that they're constantly talking about supporting, um, basically denying them uh, mental health care and things that would help them integrate back into society as healthy human beings. These are the pro-lifers that are making these strong, violent statements toward women who choose to practice their reproductive rights or women, people in general, who choose to support reproductive rights. This is not about life. If they cared about life, they would go out of their way to improve the lives of Americans that are living and breathing today. But they continuously go out of their way to protect the lives of corporations, the wealthiest people in the country, the whitest people in the country, and that's all that really matters to them. Mm-hmm. The only time the issue of abortion ever comes up, and you'll notice this pattern, is when there's a presidential election coming around. When there's a presidential election, all of a sudden, oh my God, we care so much about these babies. Babies this, babies that, babies, babies, babies. you can't kill any babies. Yeah. It's for political fucking gain. That's all it's about. That's all they care about. It's political gain. They don't care about lives. And so they target Planned Parenthood with this violent rhetoric. And then as soon as some crazy unhinged person carries out an act of violence, like, what? I don't know. Where where did that come from? It's not us. It's not us. You can't keep fucking saying baby killer. Because when you do that, then crazy people will carry out acts of violence. Okay? That is violent rhetoric. And your violent rhetoric translates to violent actions. If you don't get that, well, you're either in denial or you know it's true and you just don't want to admit it. Yeah, no, you're totally right. It shows that they don't actually care about the babies because they only care about it when elections come around. And also this last incident shows us that they don't care about cop lives either. Because they, they don't seem that concerned with the cops being killed. In other cases when cops are killed, they do seem to care. In this case, it's all about protecting themselves. And, and to go back to Megyn Kelly's thing where she said, they're saying that the rhetoric led him to do it. As if rhetoric, as if hours and hours every day of political communication and persuasion can't do anything. If you don't think it can accomplish anything, what have you chosen this career for? And also, when they talk about terrorism and why terrorists do what they do, they're always saying, well, you know, it's these mullahs, the leaders of these churches. How could they possibly be responsible? They're just using rhetoric. That's, That's what point. convinces people to do shit. When you... When you tell them they're they're baby killers, that they're chopping up and selling baby parts, that's to spur them into action, to go vote. No, of course, if they actually believe you, and you know they do because they believe in their Christian holy books as much as the crazy fundamentals uh, Muslims believe in theirs, they're not going to just vote for a candidate based on it. Some of them are going to pick up their guns that you've made easily accessible, and they're going to take matters into their own hands. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell the Department of Justice to investigate clinic violence as terrorism. Our legislators seem obsessed with terrorism, just the kind that comes from scary foreign threats overseas. But a mass shooting at a reproductive health clinic, or the assassination of a doctor at his church, or by a sniper rifle while standing in his kitchen... 
Those are just isolated incidents, nothing to worry about. The FBI's shorthand definition of domestic terrorism reads, quote, Americans attacking Americans based on U.S.-based extremist ideologies, unquote. This should easily apply to the decades-long religious extremism-based movement to end abortion by any means necessary in this country. The Colorado Springs shooting wasn't a surprise to the clinic, which has a safe room, a stash of Kevlar vests, and thick bulletproof glass. And it wasn't a surprise to the staff of the other clinics, both Planned Parenthood and independent providers. 68% of reproductive health clinics nationwide experience frequent and regular anti-abortion activity. For their book, Living in the Crosshairs, The Untold Stories of Anti-Abortion Terrorism, lawyer-slash-authors David Cohen and Kristen Conan interviewed abortion providers around the country. They report that provider targeting has included assaults, threats in person and by mail, targeting of private practices and other places of employment, bombings, home picketings, stalking of providers' young children, kidnappings, internet attacks, and intimidation of extended family and neighbors. NARAL and other pro-choice groups have delivered a petition to the Department of Justice asking them to investigate these attacks as terrorism, a special legal designation that allows the coordination of law enforcement agencies and jurisdictions as well as federal resources and support. Through the magic of the internet age, you can still add your name to their petition through the link in the segment notes. There's also a petition at credoaction.com in support of the campaign. Get updates and read about the thousands of attacks on abortion providers on the hashtag investigate clinic violence thread. You can also get involved with clinic defense volunteer work by contacting the Clinic Vest Project through their website, clinicvestproject.org. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If ending the campaign of violence against abortion providers matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about hashtag investigate clinic violence via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Earlier this month, we talked to a doctor who wrote a compelling op-ed for the Washington Post about the threats and constant fears she lives with because she performs abortions. Legal medical procedure. She recently found her office address and a picture of her daughter, who was then an infant, posted on a website accusing her of being part of, quote, the abortion cartel. She wrote in her op-ed, I fear for the safety of my child. I worry that protesters may someday show up at her daycare focused on hurting her as a way to punish me. Seeing her face on the anti-choice website made me consider that maybe she would be safer living apart from me, that my presence in her life might cause her more harm than good. While I refuse to be intimidated from doing my job, this assault on my confidence as a mother has been particularly distressing. Dr. Diane Horvath-Cosper joins me now from Baltimore. It's nice to have you back, although in these circumstances, maybe not, not such a, a nice way to, to welcome you back. Sure. Are you, last time we talked, I kept saying, are you sure? Does this, are, are you feeling like, um, like you would want to change your path? And I, I have to ask you that same question today. 
You know, I think that abortion providers and my colleagues and I and the staff we work with are drawn by a sense of conscience to provide this care for patients. It doesn't matter, you know, what type of care you need. I want women to be able to access abortion in a safe, legal, compassionate environment. So, no, I'm not deterred. And yet, clearly the point of this work, of, of I mean, of excuse mm-hmm. me, of, of this kind of violence, clearly the point of mm-hmm. terror in these spaces is to deter physicians, to deter the young medical students. Um, from going into this work. And, and so I guess part of what I wonder is, what does it mean to have gone through all the work, all the student loans undoubtedly, to get through medical school and then be facing this, not in a, not in a war zone, but in your own hometown? Well, I think that, you know, this is just behavior that's not tolerated in any other type of medical profession. Uh, people walking into other kind of clinics don't have to deal with uh, phalanx of protesters and harassment. And I think it's unacceptable in a civil society. And I hope that this is a sign that the tide is turning. And I hope that the public outrage about this domestic terror attack helps drive the dialogue. Stick with me, Doctor. Um, David, I wanted to ask you about this because, you know, as I've been reading on it, apparently part of the reason this Planned Parenthood was in this space, right, um, in this kind of mini mall kind of area where there's a UPS and there's a nail shop, and is so that they're not isolated somewhere, so that there is um, relatively more privacy for their patients who are coming in, as well as presumably they are more protected in this space. And yet the idea that the Planned Parenthood still may have been a target here. Right. I mean, the further an abortion clinic can be away from public traffic, the safer they are. If they're on private space as part of a private medical center, the more protected they are. But that goes against what we were talking about before. They shouldn't have to be back away from public space. They should be out there with their Planned Parenthood or Women's Center sign because abortion should not be stigmatized the way it is. They should feel safe being public about being abortion providers and being an abortion clinic. But they're not because of what happened yesterday. I can remember, um, Alexis, my, my mom who was working in domestic violence work in the 1970s and 80s, and the shelters for people coming in in circumstances of domestic violence were always shielded. It doesn't say shelter for health and emergency outside because you recognize that there's real danger. And so I, can, you know, I, I look at a moment like this and I go, so do we take the Planned Parenthood side down? Do we cower? Do we hide behind this because I courage matters but then I also worry about the safety of providers well and I you know uh, we worry about that intensively right and our, our staff are, are very well trained around security procedures and I think it's it's um, all of the law enforcement officials that I saw commenting on this yesterday talked about how how really well trained they were that there wasn't a, a larger um, loss of life or, or um, folks who were injured but I think that's it's like really the the question that we should be building better barricades for women's health centers you know is not the right one Right, we have to be figuring out why women's health is under attack in such an intense way. Cecile talks all the time about how you know, having grown up in Texas, that you know that that there are states now that have fewer rights for women than than we had just you know 50, 60 years ago. And so the idea that we are reverting and um, and and creating these um, very horrible environments for for our providers um, is really is really a horrible thing. But I agree with what the doctor said that that. Our um, the mission drivenness mm-hmm. of our healthcare professionals is so mm-hmm. amazing. You you feel like you're walking into a movement mm-hmm. when you walk into Planned Parenthood because you know, and across the board, mm-hmm. you know that they are there for uh, for their patients, to, no matter what. Dr. Cosper, did you and your colleagues? Ha- I mean, I, I presume like all the rest of us, your co- you know, you have email lists. And, like, did you all activate yesterday? Were you talking to each other? What kinds of things were you saying? I think that we all 
act out of concern and support for one another and also the recognition that we're here for our patients. And I think the important thing to remember is that no matter what happened in Colorado Springs yesterday, hundreds of clinics across the country are open today and ready to take care of patients with compassion and with empathy and with that mission focus that we've always had. And that's kind of the the central claim of counterterrorism, right? Is that you you stand up the next day and you don't allow the fear to overtake. Right. On November 27, 2015, a shooting spree and five-hour-long standoff took place at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Three people lost their lives and several others were injured. The fear of attacks like these are one reason that Dr. Susan Wickland, an abortion provider in Montana, shares her experiences and speaks out against the anti-abortion harassers. The following is a reading from the play Words of Choice an entry from Dr. Susan Wickland's diary about her intense fear when abortion protesters threatened her and terrorized her family. Journal entry, August 1990. Scared, so scared. Hard to think, heart pounding. Try to avoid the protesters in front of the clinic. I hid in the backseat of a taxi. Went to the back door of the clinic, two men there. One man grabbed me and slammed me up against a park van, his face in my face, screaming at me, You kill her! You kill her! You deserve to die! Stop killing babies, Susan! I struggle. Got away from the van by just inches, and they threw me up against it. Screaming, I hit send on the phone. I hoped someone would hear. I felt my hip slam into the side of the van again, heard another voice. The back door was open. Attackers briefly let go, and I ran for it. I feel like I'm... Still sitting in a frantic dream. Need to gather myself enough to see patients. I need to cry. January 27th, 1991. On the weeks that I drive to the Fargo Clinic, 240 miles from my home, I always stop at the edge of town and call for a protester of the day report. One morning, the activity is particularly bad, so I put on a wig, a heavy coat of makeup, long black jumper, tennis shoes, and sunglasses. I park my car blocks away, and I walk toward the clinic. I can see a crowd gathered there, 100 of them, all people whose only objective it is to keep me from my work. They are after control. Control of me, control of the women coming to the clinic, control of anyone who believes differently than they do. At the edge of the crowd, I begin mingling. I hear myself shouting their awful words just to play the part. And finally, I'm at the front lines. I take off my sunglasses as I move closer to the guard, silently signaling with my eyes, It's me! It's me! And his eyes find mine. Color drains from his face. I nod. He moves slightly to the side, opening up a path, and I dart through. I never look back. On my return flight to Minneapolis, I'm anxious to see my daughter, Sonia, and Randy, my husband. 
and the elevator opens on the fifth floor of the airport parking garage, and it strikes me how devoid of people it is at 10 p.m. I walk toward my car, and I see movement inside a van about 50 feet away. Three people emerge, two men and a woman, protesters. My first instinct is to turn and flee. They come at me. I feel like prey. They begin with their stream of words. Susan, you have to stop killing babies. You have to stop killing babies. How dare they speak my name as if they know me. My body feels hot. I mean, they've come 300 miles to meet me in a dark parking lot. I look into their faces now two feet away. How dare you, I scream. How dare you? How dare you? You go to my home. You terrorize my daughter. How dare you? Words are my only weapon, my only power. They stop, and I can see shame register. And suddenly I'm at my car. I throw my pack inside. I drive out into the dark, big night, and I pull over to the side of the road. I want to vomit. The siege continues for weeks. Randy, Sonia, and I are at the house in Wisconsin. I'm due in Fargo again the next morning for clinic at 9 a.m. A great many protesters begin collecting outside. A motorhome pulls up at the end of the drive, and then groups of men move in huge cement barrels to block our way out. They call the police. They say it's too dangerous for the officers to come in the dark. If the problem is still there in the morning, backup help from other counties will be called. I begin pacing. I have 15 patients scheduled, and I am determined to get there. I make a phone call to a woman in town who'd offered help. Randy gets my gun. I go out the back door, downhill on a narrow, brushy trail to the edge of a swamp, then along the river to an old trail. Step by step, I make my way. Please, please, just let me make it to that dirt road. I reach the prearranged spot just as a small red car pulls in. Sue, yes, I'm here. She delivers me to the stables where we have a few horses and keep an old pickup. I drive all night and reach the clinic before dawn, park in the back. Out front, the protesters are already gathering, jubilant. They're obviously in contact with the group back at my home. The protesters jeer at the guards. No clinic today, they jeer. Your doctor won't make it in today. Dr. Susan won't make it in today. I cannot stand hearing them one more minute. I walk to the front door. And I open it, and for the first time, for the first time, I walk out onto the porch in my scrubs. I'm here, I say. I am here. And there will be clinic today. We just heard clips featuring All In With Chris Hayes on the history of reproductive rights, Rachel Maddow on the history of attacks against abortion providers, Counterspin interviewed Jody Jacobson about the broader context of the Colorado shooting, the Young Turks tackled the right-wing media's baby parts propaganda campaign, Melissa Harris-Perry interviewed abortion providers who were bravely not deterred by the attacks, and the excerpt from abortion provider Dr. Susan Wisklin's journal that we just heard came from a great show called Making Contact. And today's activism is from NARAL and the hashtag InvestigateClinicViolence. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, let's hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Spencer. I'm in Utah. I just finished listening to your latest episode about labor rights and killing the middle class. And I, I just wanted to express my deep concern for 
people who find the need to justify not paying women in the workplace the same as they pay men. I think that it's 2015. Uh, we don't live in the madman era anymore. Uh, and there's absolutely no justification for not closing the gender wage gap that exists in America. Uh, I recently read that uh, in 2014, President Obama in his State of the Union address, he, he talked about this and he called out government entities asking them to address it and then strides have been taken, but for the most part, uh, the Paycheck Fairness Act comes to mind. Uh, most of these bills that have have tried to close the wage gap have been shot down by Senate Republicans. Uh, President Obama in 2014 said, a woman deserves equal pay for equal work. It's time to do away with workplace policies that belong in a Mad Men episode. And I, I, I completely agree with him. People watched Mad Men and when it was on the air and they would comment and talk about how awful and disappointing and disgusting it was to see women treated so unfairly. And in, in today's world, they, they turn their heads and they act like it's not happening and they are blind to the fact that so many women are continually treated the same way today in 2015. I just I just think it's appalling and I think it's awful that we're still debating this subject uh, because there's no justification for it. Women should be paid the same as men, period. The equal rights should exist for all people. You know, the freedoms that, that our founding fathers believed in, they're not just some fictional idea. They have been, and they always should be, a way of life for the American people. They, they need to be defended. They need to be protected, not just for men and not just for women, but they, they ought to be available to all Americans. That was just the thoughts I had after listening to your excellent episode. Um, hopefully we can uh, continue to learn more about this and, and improve our community and our country together. Thanks for doing the show. I really enjoy it. I uh, hope they'll be calling in some more. Hopefully I'll be able to help get some uh, thoughtful discussion uh, going. But anyway, thank you for all the hard work you do. We'll talk to you later, Jay. Thanks. Hi, this is Ezra. I live in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your show. I wanted to comment on uh, the classic American xenophobia episode where you talked about how Carson and Tr Trump's rhetoric parallels fascist policy during World War II. I want to point out that the mechanisms which led to the eventual um, extermination of Jews then is already underway now. We do not have to wait for Trump or Carson or Cruz to, God forbid, become president. The Germans before the war looked for ways to deport the Jews. There were rallying cries to have the Jews go back to Palestine. It was after the Evian Conference when it became clear that no country wanted to take in Jews, that some of the more violent atrocities took place. So too, you're already comfortable in America with profiling Muslim Americans in airports, setting them apart, seizing property, and questioning them for long periods of time. The FBI even goes to the homes of Muslims involved in the Muslim community for questioning and looks to deport or prosecute many innocent people. Many see Muslims as dangerous terrorists who should go back sometimes to Palestine, but really to any majority Muslim country. Some wonder how the advanced enlightened nation of Germany allowed the Holocaust to happen, and I say that as long as racist policies are allowed to fester, environments right for the rise of Cruz, Carson, Trump extremism are already established.
Hey, Jay, it's Wade. I wanted to comment on the Laquan McDonald shooting up there in Chicago and about how disturbed I am by the, the events that have occurred. You know, you look at it in its entirety, and the first thing we have is the the, the shooting, completely unnecessary shooting of, of, of this kid. And now we have the bullshit, completely wrong, completely full of lies report they put out on it. And then you have a cover-up, okay? It's a blatant cover-up. You cannot tell me that the police officers, the police commissioner, the captains, whatnot, all the hierarchy didn't view the dash cam footage. And then they had to look at the report. And they had to look at the two side by side at some point. They knew the report was bullshit. They knew it. They knew it. Put it out anyway. But there's a, there's a, there's another, if that's not bad enough, there's another, another level of offensiveness. They actually thought they were going to be able to get away with it. They're so arrogant that they thought they were going to be able to, to, to cover this up and, and it would just go away. And that is just, that, that shocks me. It shouldn't shock me. I, I, it shouldn't shock me. But, but it does. And it, and it makes me mad. It makes me very, very angry. And I don't understand this, this mentality of, of so many police departments in America. This good old boy network. Once you're in, you're in. You're one of us. And we will go to great lengths to protect you. This, to protect one cop, one cop who, who they knew, who they knew screwed up, who panicked with a gun to go to what this is going to cost millions, tens of millions of dollars now. All because they try to protect one cop. Is he really worth that? And, and, and beyond that, why would you still want him serving in your police force, serving your citizens? Why would you want that? I mean, I understand camaraderie. I was a United States Marine. But if you screwed up royally, nobody would trust you anymore. Just being a Marine didn't guarantee you you were always going to be in the club. You had to maintain. But it seems like with the police, it's not that way. Once you got a badge, you're in the club. By God, we'll go to great lengths to protect you. Even when you are blatantly in the wrong. That officer murdered that kid. Many people in Chicago knew it. And now that cop will probably get convicted, hopefully. But to me, that's not good enough. That's not good enough at all. I want to see everybody in involved with that conspiracy in jail. And we won't see it. We won't see it, Jay. And that's a fucking shame, man. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Kubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And one bonus voicemail for you today, uh, because Wade's questions about you know police and all of that actually reminded me of this old call we got from Jack from Chicago. And for some reason, this feels like this call came in like years ago, but turns out it was only like a little more than a year ago. But I think it's worth revisiting. Hi, this is Jack out of Chicago. There's something your general public doesn't know about police officers. There's three types of police officers. Uh, Dudley Do-Rights, these are the ones that are altruistic, that really want to change the world. They never make a passive probationary period. The first time they whistle blow on something, they get knocked off. That's the reason why they have an 18-month probation period. It's not just to root out the bad cops. It's to root out 
the cops that are too good. Second type of police officer you have is just the working guy. He takes it as a job, puts his nose to the grindstone, just wants to get through the days, provide for his family. Now, the third type of cop is the troublesome cop. These are the ones that, uh, that become a cop because they like to exert power over other people. And these are the ones that cause the most trouble, the most issues, but they're covered up by other cops because of a system that you're going to be called mutually assured destruction. One of the first things you need to do if you want to be a career cop is to collect blackmail on your fellow cops. It could be really simple. It could be a video of hookers at a bachelor party. It could be um, just documenting every time a cop makes a mistake, writing down the witness, the, the, the suspect's name. It could be anything like that, something that's good enough to get a, a police officer fired and then not tell anyone about it. And later down the road, when you need help, you just threaten. You just say, hey, listen, if you fire me for this, I'm bringing down half the chain command with you, with me, because I got all this evidence about all this other stuff. And next thing you know, the wagons start circling around to protect this bad cop because he has enough evidence on all the other cops that forces them to protect him, even though they don't like him. And because of this system of good cops, ethical cops being rooted out too quickly and, and working cops who just don't want any trouble, you have cops... The bad cops pretty much uh, own the roost. And this blackmail that they accumulate is not just for job protection. It could be used for enhancing everyone's career. That's why it's the bad cops that end up getting promoted to sergeant, lieutenant, assistant chief, or even chief. Now, you think the chief is the most powerful guy inside the police department? He really isn't because if he rolls up through, through the ranks in that police department, to become chief, chances are every lieutenant, every sergeant has tons of blackmail on that guy. So he can't fire anyone without risking his own job and his own pension. And that's a lot of reasons why when the police department is looking for a new police chief, they reach out. They don't promote from within. They reach out and they get a new guy from somewhere else because they know that guy, you know, is clean or, or at least knowing that that local police department has any crap on them. So this is the reason why police departments are inherently corrupt. Number one, the altruistic cops, the good cops, the deadly do rights, they're weed out within 18 months. The working cops are too afraid of losing their jobs to blow the whistle because they saw what happened to the ethical cops. And the bad cops pretty much just run the place and end up getting promoted. That's how it works. And there's nothing to do about it. Bye. There we go. So thanks again to Jack for his insights on that. Uh, my understanding is that Jack is also available for your holiday parties or your bar mitzvahs, that sort of thing. So if you're in need of entertainment, you know where to go. Now, as long as we're doing bonus voicemails, I got a couple more for you. As you know, I'm in the middle of a membership drive here to trying to close out the year. And I got a, a couple of messages that are at least tangentially related to the membership drive. Uh, the first is from Paul from Winnipeg. He's the liberal conservative from Canada because I guess that's like a thing in Canada that you can be. And he had called in asking about the uh, $15 uh, minimum wage in both 
America and Canada, and I responded to that on the previous show. So he responded. He has some thoughts on the TPP, also membership, and also I think he's high even though he denies it. <laughs> well, the conservative, liberal, PC, I'm high. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just laughing. That Your explanation was perfect. Uh, thank you very much. Um, but that's not what I'm calling about. Uh, talking about the fact that I used to support the TPP before your episode, or at least the idea of a trade agreement with the West and the East. Uh, the West and China, I guess, so, or, or the Pacific. But holy crap. I didn't know how bad it was. Like, that was some of the craziest shit I've ever heard on your show. And I'm so glad you made me laugh after with the hundred dollars. Like, you can also have this the shame wall, I guess. Uh, Like I said in the last episode, I've been listening to you since the healthcare debate. I think that's, Oh, episode when 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 was that like that, that was eight years ago probably like what a hundred episode one hundred or something and I've been listening to progressive media since then and I don't think I've ever donated to any progressive media but you made me laugh so hard with that segue I will definitely do it before the end of your drive uh, I just got straight down to part time though so give me some chance thank you so much Jay and. Uh, we need to fight that TPP. That is the, the worst. Also, on the whole, is he a racist or not thing, I don't think he means to be racist, but as this may said by many people, uh, he is. Also, uh, I would love to hear a show by just uh, our conservative friend. Bye. All right. I think I followed most of that, even though I think he lost his train of thought a couple of times. But uh, if Paul or anyone else needs some uh, extra inspiration to get themselves off the wall of shame of people who have been intending to uh, support independent progressive media for a long time, or maybe it's just occurred to you that you should support independent progressive media uh, but haven't yet, here is a, a very nice and very sober sounding message uh, making exactly that point. Hi Jay, this is Jack from Atlanta. Um, I actually recently became a member, so I felt pretty glad when you, uh, you know, kind of shamed everyone into becoming members because it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. And uh, I'm a member of NPR, but it's I kind of realised recently I don't really listen to it very much. I tend to just listen to podcasts, especially Best of the Left. And I do want to say, I honestly think that listening to Best of the Left over the past year, year and a half has actually made me a lot more politically aware, politically sort of motivated than I used to be. Because um, I grew up in the UK, I've been living here for about five years. And just the whole thing with people, you know, being against taxes and being against the government, I just never really understood. So that is something that I've grown to kind of understand and not empathize with, certainly. But uh, I I can understand where, you know, where that, that comes from, uh, and that group of people. But at the same time, I think it's completely ridiculous. And, you know, I'm really happy that somebody like Bernie Sanders is running for president of the USA and will hopefully get in. But anyway, um, this is what I'm saying. Big fan of the show. And uh, thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. Bye. All right. So it sounds like we have consensus across the spectrum. Everyone from uh, inebriated Canadians all the way to relatively sober sounding Brits living in the American South and presumably everyone in between agrees 
supporting independent progressive media is an excellent thing to do. If you have the capacity to support the show and you don't, you're going to end up feeling guilty the way Paul does after he's been listening to the show for years. But if you can and you do, then you're going to end up feeling great the way Zach does. So excellent set of bookends for this membership drive. As I've been saying, I've set what I think is a pretty modest uh, campaign goal, just looking for 100 new signups total to uh, ensure that the show stays on a very solid financial footing, looking for about you know, like 35, 40 more signups. Uh, my apologies for not having the updated list handy to, uh, to thank people right now. Um, but if, you know, if you're someone with an extra like six bucks kicking around at the end of each month that you think you can spare to support the show, Head over to bestofleft.com, go to the contribute page, and your support will be very much appreciated. Now, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who have already supported the show through the years by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every Every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our Sad stories and wonder why we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past.